Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 68, the one about transformative questions, podcast growth, live video and presentations, and the film Dread. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the host of the Rockdoll video series and the author of Cats, Matt, and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, I'm also joined by a man who is also on a mission, this time to demystify digital marketing. He is the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast and many other video series. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you very much, Roger. Viewers and listeners, this is episode 68. Wow, 68. We're nearly nearly at the big 7-0. Can you say the big 7-0? Is that a milestone? Feels like one. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, yeah. <laughs> just, we'll, we'll think of something. But um, can I just say, I'll just quickly glance at the show notes, and this is going to be a very good one. There's so much to talk about. I can't wait to get your reaction. But can I also let you know that you're making me a very happy host or co-host, should I say, <laughs> with your selection in film marketing? Oh, dread. Or should we say dread 3D? This movie actually was released 10 years ago, and we're going to be talking about the marketing campaign, about the movie that you and I love, but we're not so keen and hot on the campaign itself, so more will be revealed by the end of the show. But for now, let's begin with In the News. The BBC announced a total of 257 million podcast downloads globally last quarter. That would make it the third podcast producer in the world. Number two is NPR and number one is iHeartRadio. Well, according to LinkedIn, recruiters are having trouble finding marketers, Roger, with skills in digital strategy, omniture, link building, search advertising, and off-page SEO. And the fastest growing occupations are media coordinator, search manager, and social media coordinator. In the US, 81% of people are more concerned about their social privacy than they were last year, and 69% have deleted or thought of deleting a social media account because of recent social media data breaches. TikTok has been testing new features such as enabling users to create a digital character avatar based on the selfie, new group chats options, subscription tools, and of course, audio live streaming. The small screen is not always best, according to 2021 research by website builder Expert. Desktop e-commerce traffic has the lowest cart abandoned rate and the highest conversion rate when compared to mobile phone traffic. Mm, Motion.com and Upspot shared their 2021 Instagraphic report after studying 100 million Instagram posts. My goodness, top key findings include that carousel posts overtake both single image and video updates as the most engaging type of post. Meta, oblique Facebook, denied that it is threatening to leave Europe, even though the company warned the US Securities and Exchange Commission, if we are unable to transfer data between and amongst countries in which we operate, we will likely be unable to offer Facebook and Instagram in Europe. And finally, welcome to the awful, ugly era of drop servicing, the skill-based drop shipping scheme promoted by pseudo entrepreneurs on TikTok. You pay someone who pays somebody else who will probably pay another person who then pays the real worker a few cents to take care of your digital needs. My goodness. <laughs> this is just awful. What is happening to our industry, Roger? Uh, there's, there's quite a few interesting things there, you know, um, that, that's 
we, there's always a, an undercurrent of bad stuff going on, isn't there? There's the dark side. I guess there's a dark side to every industry, but there seems to be a dark side to to marketing as well. And and I don't like reading that sort of thing. There's an element of um, it's just 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 wrong. It's 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 abuse in a way, isn't it? It's uh, it's manipulation. It's using people. Don't like it. I don't like it. You have the two sides of the scale. On one hand, the customer who is being misled, potentially. And the other, I mean, this is bordering on digital slavery. And you're right. It's so hard to get people to pay attention to the cause of marketing without them rolling their eyes or throwing back at you their bad experience or the jargons. I mean, I was hosting a mini conference yesterday, Roger, and some of the stuff that the small businesses were retelling with regard to particularly SEO and social media services was just simply hair-raising. I mean, I'm thinking, what are you still being essentially sold this rubbish 20 years later? But on, on the subject of um, skills, I suppose, and, and employment, LinkedIn have done the, their study. Now, granted, this probably more US-centric, although they do say it's global. Isn't that fascinating that people are troubling, having trouble sorry, to find marketers in strategy? Well, yes. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all because, as we've said frequently on this podcast, we've lost the ability to do strategy. Everything has become so tactical. And, and there's nothing wrong with those tactics. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not attacking the tactics. You need the tactics. The tactics will help you to succeed. But tactics never work without strategy. And we do seem to have lost the ability to do strategy as an industry. So I'm not actually surprised by these findings. But it points a very clear lesson that we've got to as a profession and we've got to as an industry, we've got to rediscover the ability to do strategy so that those tactics that we love so much will have a chance of working and what is interesting if you look at you know the skills that uh, people are struggling to find the right individuals you've got the strategy mentioned omniture which is all about analytics link building search advertising and off-page seo which are all driven by uh, an understanding of the audience and the audience behavior online so back to that which is the idea of yeah people can do the tactics the hacks and and the apps but once you start to have to be more strategic and actually um, have your information decision informed by audience uh, data and intelligence, then the whole thing falls apart. Absolutely right, yeah. I thought it was fascinating about your news item on desktop versus mobile. Mm. And that's not something that I've heard say before. If anything, we've heard the opposite, which is, listen, you know, people are glued to their mobile phones. Mobile phones is the way to go. Do be mobile phone first. You know, all the sentences that people have been using, usually for the marketing of online marketing. But here we are. Now, um, I've just made a, a quick look, uh, had a quick look at the article from Website Builder Expert. And really, it's not a small difference. So literally, the conversion rate, you know, when, when it comes to, um, desktop versus mobile is, you know, so vast, you know, so different that we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of pounds or dollars mm -hmm. that you could be uh, earning if you just give the same amount of attention to the desktop version than mobile. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. I was just thinking about it. I've been buying quite a few things on Amazon over the last few weeks, and I do find myself, I will browse Amazon on my mobile phone, but when I actually make the purchase... It's usually on the desktop. Now, wow. I don't know whether th th that's intentional, but that's what I do. I, I will browse on the mobile, but I will buy on the desktop. 
So that's an important news to to be shared, um, and I will probably you know make a point of sharing that article individually uh, mm-hmm. on the socials. But let's close. We we, we have to with uh, Facebook or Meta doing the okikoiki in out <laughs> in out. So um, early in the week, at the time of recording this this uh, podcast, the the news not Facebook officially, but everybody else saying, we've come across this report published by Facebook to the US Securities and Exchange Commission saying, well, if we have to literally follow the rules of a particular country we operate in, let's say the UK, France or Germany, where as the EU Commission is progressing, saying if you hold data, um, Rogers and Pascal's details, they have to be stored in the UK safely, they have to match, obviously, the, the requirement, and you're not permitted to transfer that data to the US. I don't have a yeah. problem with that. Sorry, George, was it? go on. No, the, this, this is Facebook being belligerent, isn't it? Mm. And not wanting to follow the rules and saying to the world, we are so big now, we are bigger than any country, we are bigger than any group of countries, we're bigger than Europe in this, in this instance. And it's a bit of saber rattling. And again, it's that sort of dark side of the, of the world that we, we mentioned before, you know, Zuckerberg has got this sort of megalomaniac streak to him, I'm sure. And I'm sorry, but they are businesses and they have to follow the rules. And they make masses and masses of money, billions and billions of dollars, pounds, whatever. And they probably don't pay as much tax as they should do. So the extra investment that is needed to follow the rules of the countries and sort the data out surely is not beyond them. So I just think that they're, they're saber-rattling because they're big enough to to be able to saber-rattle. And, and hopefully that's all that it is. And in the end, they'll just have to put the tail between the legs or Zuckerberg will have to put his tail between the legs and actually just do it and get on with it. I mean, there'll, there'll probably be, I was going to say, will there be an outcry if Facebook was closed down in Europe? Probably from a lot of people. Some people will be good, glad to see the back of them, I guess. Um, maybe maybe there'll be a bigger outcry about Instagram, if truth be told. But uh, when you play brinkmanship, you've got to be prepared to follow through on your um, threats, I guess. Absolutely. And for me, you flip it, just go, brilliant. Thank you for you know being clearer with your rules. Let us open data centers and, in fact, offer that service to others. You know, there was a chance to turn this around. But you're right, Facebook seems to have this habit of just complaining first and doing the right thing later. Am I right in thinking that many, many months ago, we reported that Facebook was having a bit of a clash with the Australian government? Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, Facebook had to just go back home and just uh, lick their wounds. Yep, I think that's exactly right. So, yeah, wouldn't it be better, as you say, if they just said, look, these are the rules. It's going to be a bit of a, um, a hassle for us, but we will do it because our folk, our customers are the, are the most important things for us. Their privacy is the most important thing. Data protection is important, and we're going to do it. It's just that the rules are different in Europe, and it might take us a while. But no, they turn it into a great big battle, <laughs> you know, us against them. And, uh, yeah, okay, don't like it. No. So, Mark, if you're listening, Richard and Pascal can sort you out. (laughs) (laughs) Let's slow things down, if you don't mind, Roger, with the content spotlights. Yes. In this segment of the show, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video that can help us reflect what it means to be a marketer in today's economy. So, Roger, what have you got for us today? Okay, I've got an article from Marketing Week, one of my favorite publications, written by my namesake, Helen Edwards. 
And this is an interesting article, actually, and I'll tell you a little bit of a backstory to this. I came across this article when I was doing research for something else, not this podcast. And I was having a conversation with one of the um, companies that I work with, Protection Review. I've mentioned them on the show a few times. They run a big financial services conference in the United Kingdom. And one of the conversations I was having with them this week was, why do people in the financial services industry, why do companies just seem to do the same stuff. They just do the same stuff over and over again. It goes back to that misquoted Einstein uh, quote, doesn't it? That um, it's madness to think if you carry on doing the same things that you'll get different outcomes. But it does tend to happen in the financial services industry. And we were thinking, is there an angle that we could feed into a future conference or into a future webinar. So I started doing a little bit of research about it. And this article from Helen absolutely hit the nail on the head for me. And it's a really short article, but the heading is marketing's transformative questions don't start with how. And the byline is, marketers are often preoccupied with practical challenges, but also need to address questions of vision that start with why and what if. So basically, she starts the article by saying a lot of the questions that you ask yourself when you're putting together marketing plans or strategies or even just your business plan for the year usually start with the word how. And she gives a load of examples. So how do we improve our brand NPS, net, net, uh, net Promoter Score. How can we drill down for deeper customer insights? How can we reactivate lapsed direct-to-consumer uh, 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 customers? How do we ensure we maintain our price premium? How do we motivate the agency to greater heights? How do we create more customer loyalty? How do we launch a new product? See where I'm going with this, Pascal. And, and what she's saying is that... When you just use the words how, you're effectively saying that the status quo is okay and that everything that you're trying to do assumes that the, the things that are in place are absolutely fine. And that's why this article really resonated with me when I was thinking about the protection review problem is that we were saying, why does everybody just have the same products and they do the same sort of marketing and they do the same sort of campaigns? And the answer is because they don't want to change the status quo. They just want to carry on doing what they're doing with their products, with their marketing. But they assume that the structure of the products, the structure of the industry or the customer needs don't change. And that's not that's that's never right, is it? But that's the sort of trap you get into. How do we increase sales? How do we make our products stand out a bit more than everybody else? If you only answer those how questions, you just carry on doing the same things, cutting prices, adding a bell and whistle onto your, onto your product. What Helen asks us to do now is to go back to all of those questions that she's come up with there. And instead of saying how, you actually have to go and say why. Why do we want to improve our net pr promoter score? Now, the answer might be because we want to appear high in the charts, we don't want to get negative reviews, whatever it is. But the answer might be that you, you know, that's not an important metric for us. How do we, um, how, how do we develop a better product? Instead of saying that, you say, why 
do we want to build a better product? Now, the answer might be, actually, we're adding a bell and whistle to the policy, not because it meets a customer need, but because we want an extra bell and whistle so that we've got something to knock the competition with. And whilst that will give us an advantage, it's not actually a customer advantage. So when you sort of say why, it then encourages you to challenge the status quo. And if you do find something that you want to challenge, the next stage is to say, what if? So instead of why, how do we add a bell and whistle to a product? Say, why do we want to add it? Well, actually, if it's all about just appearing better in league tables, you might then say, what if we didn't bother about the league tables and actually built the product purely to meet the customer need? See where I'm going with this? It's much easier to challenge the status quo when you just change the way that you question what you're doing. And so many of us, and and Pascal, I do this all the time. How do I increase my business? How do I get more customers? How can I improve my website? You've got to sit back and say, why? Do I want to do these things and see if you can then go the step further and say, what if I change this? What if we abandon the way we do things and go for something totally different? And the rest of the article really just goes through that process that you would go through. And, you know, it's it's difficult, as we've always said, there's a, there's a certain safety and a certain comfort in just doing what you've always done. But these are the sort of simple framing questions that you can use to completely change things and completely look at things in a different way now she's not saying that you should stop doing the how questions as well because of course yes you do need to increase sales you do need to get better outcomes for your customers but if you only ask the how questions it's likely that the fundamentals will never change thank you so much for that you know funny enough (laughs) i didn't know where this was going because I'm thinking, okay, well, if it's not how, then what is it? And I, I thought about mm-hmm. a, a number of things. I must confess why I kind of went through my my mind for a flitting moment, but I thought maybe actually, forgive me, it's more complex or something. And actually, we should celebrate celebrate this, the fact that it is as simple yet as powerful as that. It reminds me a, a bit of what you and I would have said about, you know, trying to run a PR story, starting with the why and all those things. But you're right, you know, I think it's going back to our earlier conversation within the news, this kind of never-ending quest for efficiency and productivity. So we want to know how to do more tweets. We want to know how to get more flowers. We want to know how to get more traffic on the website, which is, I think, is a fair question, and I, you and I get it all the time. But if you could at least be started, if not supplemented with, why do you want more traffic to your website? And, you know, what are we going to do for those lovely visitors as opposed to just, you know, that kind of, um, I know I, I sometimes tire of, particularly if I'm a, um, kind of a guest or a witness at a marketing meeting where an agency comes along and they, they produce a slide with a dashboard with the traffic lights and so on. And it's all a bunch of numbers and conversion rates and so on. And I observe the behavior, the body language of my customers and either they are bored or either yeah. they're, not, they're not sure what to make of the data. They used to say, how do I, as a business owner, then move to the next point, which is to make a decision about what to change, what to keep, what to essentially let go. Because you can't do that when they just have rows and, 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 and kind of columns of data and, and, and more. But for me, that's where the agency missed a point, which is to actually mm-hmm. challenge the customer and say, so tell me again, why do you want to do this? Because we, we can report on that, you know, we can let you know about what has happened. But if we want to look at into the, the future, 
then you know what is it that you want to achieve why do you want to achieve it and then we can look at the better ways to go about it my concern is to close on, close on that and it's not the term that I like to use particularly you know I'm concerned but it's this idea of the marketing division and the marketing discipline just being reduced again to a doers mm. because that, that's where the how question is all about isn't it how to do something better mm. cheaper um, God forbid, you know, then you, you, you then move into your drop servicing uh, news item then. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's being more strategic and asking why questions and ask, asking what if questions are more strategic questions. So actually that, that article fits perfectly into some of the discussions we've already had this morning from the news. Someone could accuse us of planning these very carefully. Yeah, they not? could, couldn't they? Yeah, <laughs> and they'd be completely wrong. <laughs> so I've got an article for you and viewers and listeners, which I received actually via um, email from Anchor.fm, the podcasting platform bought by Spotify a few years ago now. And the title uh, was intriguing to me because also it was timely. But guess what? It starts with how. How to grow? <laughs> how to grow your podcast audience? And we've seen that type covered a lot by both those who know what they're talking about, like Mark Asquith from Captivate.fm, and those who do not know what they're talking about. I thought, hmm, am I going to delete or am I going to look? And I just looked. And actually, in fairness, they've done a pretty good job of creating what they called a comprehensive guide to getting more loyal listeners. And I think that's important. So not just an audience generally, but more loyal listeners. For your podcast. I'm not going to kind of steal the thunder of, of the article, so I'm just going to give you the, the headlines and a couple of things that I thought was really quite clever. But it begins, number one, with targeting a specific audience. And that's something that you and I have discussed before, not just for this podcast, but in generally the advice we give our customers is you can have actually more than one customer group, but each are deserving of their own unique campaign. And I've seen the stats, I've seen the stories, whenever you target a specific audience, with a specific need challenge or, or kind of ambition, and you kind of shape your, your podcast series around that, you always do a bit better. The next thing, because you want to, you know, get more of your listeners, they, you have to find them so they can discover you. So researching your podcast audience, they argue, is a big, big job. Can't, can't be rushed. You shouldn't try and rush it. But it's all about finding out where your listeners are currently active and finding a way to become visible through collaborations and more. But they also say you should start by asking those who are uh, already part of your connect connected network with a poll, with a survey, and so on. So you're going to find ways to you know find out where they are. You're going to be using social media. You're going to be using potentially a dedicated website, email, and so on. One thing that they recommend is to also find ways to cross-promote cross with other podcasts, which I think is very, very interesting. They recommend complementing your audio version with a video version. Interesting. They recommend to have guests from time to time just to elevate the visibility. They also ask you to look into ways to get your podcast rated. And if you have some ratings, could be five stars. If you have any testimonials and so on, make sure that this is part of your communication efforts on the website and, and more, or as we do, you and I give people a little shout out during the intros and the thank you. They recommend to create a trailer for your podcast. I'm smiling because, of course, you and I started with that. And they also make sure, make, ask you to make sure you set your goals and track how you are meeting them. And I would argue that if people are not sure about setting goals, may I, without embarrassing you too much, um, pe people do have a look at Katzmatt and marketing plans because this is a big chapter in Roger's book about setting goals and, and keeping them very practical and achievable. 
then from the setting goals, they um, you know talk about this idea of make sure that you use tagging on social media, not just tagging the uh, you, not just tagging the topic, but tagging, of course, the uh, books, the authors, the specialists that you are mentioning, and also tagging the platform that you are using. So there's a whole list of things that um, now very interesting. But one thing that I've, I was pleased I saw them add into the the many the long list of things you can do. So do have a look at the article. Is really be interactive, be visible, and take part in conversation in Facebook groups and Reddit, actually. And that goes back to this idea of the challenge that you're now seeing with our customers, which is put all the effort in the creation, but not leaving yourself enough time and energy and even just motivation to then move into content promotion. And yesterday, as I mentioned, I was hosting a mini conference. And for me, for the first time ever, I went to see the organizers and said, would you mind if I mentioned my podcast with, with Roger? As part of the delivery. So I said, it's not going to be weird. You know, it will be part of the narrative and the storytelling. It, it'll work well. But here I am in front of an audience. And for the first time since we started Two Gigs and Martin podcast, I mentioned it. And therefore, I do think that in addition to have a good system and using the interweb, as I call it, you know, most fondly, we mustn't forget that every interaction, every individual that we, we bump into, a quick mention of the podcast could actually make a huge difference. There's a lot of really good stuff in there, Pascal. Mm -hmm. And you know, yesterday I uh, put out an episode of my podcast, the Marketing and Finance podcast, and I tend to do what we do with um, – with the two geeks is there'll be a tweet the tweet goes out around the time that the podcast goes live which is thursdays at 10 a.m and i'll put out a tweet now the fact is we know that so many people will not see that tweet and there's nothing wrong with doing another tweet later or maybe three or four tweets and you might think oh no 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 we're People get annoyed with seeing the same thing, but it will be different people because we know what the algorithm's like. So I think sometimes you're absolutely right. We publish something, we tweet it, we send it to our email list, uh, we do a few other things, and then we just get into that mindset of let's get on to the next episode or let's get on to the next article or whatever it is. But actually, we really do need to keep hammering the stuff that we've got out there. And I'm I'm sitting here looking at myself almost here and saying, you 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 don't do this yourself enough, even though you're telling other people to do it. I need to be reminded to do it as well. For me, what I like about the content spotlights as a segment and some of the uh, the article that we come across, they make for a perfect meeting agenda. You could just imagine having a meeting using your article about, okay, let's, let's sit, sit back for a bit and ask the why as opposed to the how. Or for others, and, and in fact, that checklist could be used for a blog series as well as a um, video series, not just a podcast from Anchor. But this idea of let's sit down, everyone, and literally read the article. It will take you ten minutes, and then let's discuss it because that's what we need. To all of us is, is is a nudge in the right direction. Excellent. Well, listen, we've been talking about Anchor.fm tweets and more, so this is time for marketing tech and apps. So, Roger, what have you found that can make life easier as a content creator and marketer? Well, Pascal, I have to say that there's another backstory to this one as well, if you'll, <laughs> if you'll just forgive me for giving you that little bit of background. I tend to use an iPad Pro as one of my main work devices, and I've had this iPad Pro for probably about six or seven years, and recently I've noticed the battery life was just 
lousy. You know, I'd get up in the morning, and by the time I've read the headlines um, from the newspapers on the iPad, it was down to about 50%. So I had to actually get myself a new one, and I've got this brand new iPad Pro, and it's fantastic. The battery only goes down about 5% in, in six hours. It's great. But, of course, when you get a new iPad, there are certain things that are that are on included within the um, bundle of apps that I've previously either deleted or forgotten about. And one of these was the good old Apple alternative to PowerPoint, which is called Apple Keynote, which is an app which I very rarely, if ever, use. I think I probably did delete it from the old iPad or put it in a folder somewhere and forgot about it. But it made me have another look at it. And I came across this absolutely remarkable feature that Apple Keynote has, which then got me onto um, YouTube looking at videos as to how to use this. And once I watched a few of these videos and saw how these other content creators were absolutely freaking out about this, I realized just how incredibly powerful it is. And it's simply the ability to put yourself live into the PowerPoint, into the keynote slide. Now, as with PowerPoint, keynote allows you to draw shapes. You can put text boxes. You can put headings. This is simply saying this box, and you just stretch the box in any way, shape you want. It can be whatever shape you want it, big, small, whatever. It could be the entire screen. What is in that screen will be what is on the camera of the iPhone or the Mac or whatever you're using. And basically, it's been made for people who are doing presentations over Zoom who don't want to have that awful scenario where you've got a load of slides and you appear in the top right corner as a little postage style, postage stamp sized you. This allows you to effectively appear full screen in your slides or a small circle or a small square or a star or whatever it is and you can move yourself about depending upon the other graphics that you're using now that's the primary aim of this is for making zoom presentations and teams and whatever a lot more professional but what the youtubers are saying and of course this is absolutely brilliant is that this is a fabulous way to make your actual videos that you're doing for youtube better because what you can do if you haven't got the adobe premiere pros or your final cut pros or all of these fabulous gizmos you can actually just build yourself a little presentation with a few points on it and you can record yourself just like you would do, not on Zoom or anything like that, but just record yourself delivering that presentation. The camera will put you into the slides where you've put yourself either full screen, little box, little circle. And then you've got yourself a really professional looking video with graphics that can fade in, fade out, you know, all the transitions that you've got with, with Keynote. Uh, text coming in, uh, other videos, whatever you want to do. And literally, it, it can, you can record it live and it can become something so much more professional without all that messing about with post-production and doing things with, with, with complicated editing software. So if you're on the go, if you're out and about and you suddenly had a great idea, I want to do a quick LinkedIn Live or I want to do a quick Facebook Live, you could rustle up yourself a couple of slides, 
effectively record yourself delivering that presentation with yourself in the slides and then upload it. Bob's your uncle. Looks absolutely fantastic. And you, you can do it you can stream it live or you can just record it and replay it later it's this has absolutely blown me away now uh, I, I i could probably actually have just talked about that today pascal that was such a revelation to me but then i um i've also been doing some work this week where somebody wanted me to chop up a video of a bigger presentation into sound bites and i did that using adobe premiere pro as you would expect but i also came across another app which is called pick to story p-i-k to story pick to story which effectively does that for you and you can go through the video and say i want that bit i want that bit i want that bit press a button and it does it all for you and create sound bites so my main my main thing as you can tell today was this remarkable revelation of something in apple keynote which i didn't even know exists but i think is absolutely mind-blowing your excitement is like palpable it's just <laughs> but but you're right and, and and isn't it fascinating you know this segment is all about making life easier as a content creator and marketer whereby all the barriers are being removed one by one slowly but surely whether it's cost whether it's just complexity or whatever and you're left with your creativity as the number one kind of asset to nurture mm -hmm. and um and and whilst you know you've been very kind about time, and you just gave a quick summary of picture story, I think I will also check that one myself. Uh, and I'm curious, and I wonder if the uh, um, what you've described for Keynote will be available on a MacBook uh, again. I suppose because of history, I'm kind of wedded to PowerPoint, but I should pay some attention to what is possible. Now, no, it's I... definitely it's definitely available on on the MacBook. In fact, wow, some some of the uh, videos that I watched on YouTube, they were specifically demonstrating how to do it on a MacBook as opposed to doing it on a on a mobile phone or on an iPad. So it's definitely available across the range within the Apple ecosphere. So exciting because I mean I've been <laughs> learning how to use Ecamm Live better to do what you just described, but that seems even easier to to do. My two selections actually come as a, uh, as a result of a conversation I had with our good friend Natalie Emine. We recorded mm. last week the Social Media News Roundup and we we're looking at 2022 strategies. And one of the strategies she recommended was to find ways where it's relevant and of course it makes sense, logical for you to do so, to connect and link with events, business events, sporting events, entertainment events, uh, life events, in and around you know those international days and, and that kind of things. So Twitter has released their 2022 events calendar app. So it's mm -hmm. a web app, you know, you have to go on the internet. And they call it the 2022 marketing calendar. And what they've done is listed for you across, you know, the next 12 months, all the major big events, sporting events, conferences, and more that you should know about. So what you do is you go in, you can choose to either look at global events whereby they have a global audience, or you can even target a specific country, which I thought was very, very interesting. Kind of thing. Hmm, I wonder what happens in Spain if you're an exporter, what's going to happen, particularly in France and so on. And you could, of course, specify the date. So, you know, maybe you can do a whole year review. Back to that, Roger, you know, looking at uh, organizing like a marketing team exercise and or you can look look at maybe an anniversary you know maybe your company is celebrating the next 10 20 30 year milestone what is happening at the same time that you could just connect once again it has to be logic 
So I did, uh, I did the test, very simple construct, very easy to use. So I can let you know that on the 1st of March, which will be pretty much at the time of this episode going out, Mobile World Congress will be taking place in Barcelona. Now, why am I mentioning it? But because <laughs> this Congress will be all about the big names and the big tech of mobile. It's not just communication. It's not just, obviously, about recording mobile. It's also about accessibility. It's about the aging populations, all kinds of things. It would be rich in content you can repurpose, in speakers that you can get in touch with to ask for an interview. So beyond having a date on the cleverly constructed you know, planner, Roger, it's all about the ideas that comes out of you knowing that massive you know, worldwide congress, mobile world, is taking place very soon. Mm. Then we can also look, and maybe you and I are going from Barcelona to Paris on the 10th of March, where the manga and sci-fi show is taking place, <laughs> because it can't just be all about work. And I was wondering what was happening the, the month of, of my birthday, October. And just you know, as a reminder, 24th of October will be United Nations Day. So it's all there for a nudge for a kind of support you with regard to coming up with something a bit more creative, a bit more plugged in. But you don't have to tweet about it. You can just use it once again as inspiration for your next content series. Now, because it is about Twitter, of course, we have to talk about hashtags. So in addition to maybe the one that you know already, some of you may want to try something a bit different, a hashtag generator by a company called Hashtag Stack. So you're allowed a free trials, and then you have to register for free. So you just need to have an account. You put a keyword, and it will list for you the, the hashtag that you should consider based on popularity, based on click rate, which I think is an important one because sometimes you can have a very popular hashtag because it's used by many people, but it's not clicked on. So that could be you know, quite, a, quite an interesting one to do. So between the Twitter marketing calendar and hashtag stack, once again, you can accelerate and just speed up the process of coming up with good ideas, good hashtag, and supporting your campaign moving forward. These are really good ideas again. I mean, hashtags is, is one of those dark arts, isn't it, a bit, to be perfectly honest, especially on Instagram. And, you know, some people say you need you could put 30 hashtags in each post on Instagram, and then some people say, no, 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 only do about five or six, and it changes every day. But one of the hardest things is actually just coming up with the, uh, the hashtags themselves. But I also like that events calendar thing. But I'm a little bit worried about going to look at it because I'm going to want to go to all these events, Pascal. <laughs> um, and I've not travelled anywhere other than London for nearly two years now. So uh, the thought of uh, travelling all over the world is both exciting but scary at the same time. You're right. It feels like inappropriate to have a conversation, even in, in, in jesting about it. Oh, let's go to Paris for the manga and sci-fi show. When for the last two years we've had to almost not have that ambition to go anywhere. Yeah, I know what you mean. Now, listen, we say this at the end of this segment all of the time, but none of this would be possible without the vision and hard work of pioneers and visionaries from the recent and distant past. It is time for This Week in History. In 1930, General Foods put the first individually packaged frozen foods, bird's eye frosted foods, on sale in Springfield, Massachusetts, USA. To test the market, the product was sold in 18 retail stores to see how customers reacted to frozen foods. Clarence Bird's Eye got his idea after seeing Canadians thawing and eating naturally frozen fish. In 1933, King Kong, directed by Miriam C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schutzack, starring Fear Ray, 
Robert Armstrong and Bruce Cabot premieres at the 6,200-seat Radio City Music Hall in New York City and the 3,700-seat RKO Roxy. In March 1976, Steve Wozniak demonstrates the circuit board of a personal computer at the Homebrew Computer Club in California, attended by a certain Steve Jobs. The two Steves later formed a company, which they named Apple, and the rest, as they say, is history. In 1992, concerns over the Michelangelo virus sparked a panic among personal computer users and world governments. As many as 5 million computers reportedly were at the danger of contracting the virus, set to erase data on the 6th of March, the anniversary of the artist's birth. Well, happy birthday, Michelangelo virus. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it amazing, Pascal, how something we take completely for granted now, like frozen food, um, started when Clarence Birdseye saw Canadians thawing and eating fish that had presumably been frozen in the sea. And and it just goes to show, when we were talking before about why do we do the same old, same old, and we asked the how question maybe rather than the why question and then, then the what if question, it's a sort that's the sort of thing that happened here. It was a it was something that he saw, probably by accident, probably by chance, which revolutionized how we eat food and how we save food and 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 make it last for a long time and i'm fascinated sometimes just to go back and see how did these ideas actually start and some of them are almost accidents aren't they it's observation Uh, i mean i don't know what just to think whether it's should have been sooner or is it about right 1930 i just can't mm-hmm. tell but i must confess i feel very embarrassed but i didn't realize that bird's eye was a real person <laughs> i thought it was some <laughs> some it was a marketing gimmick where they just find some fisherman somewhere took a picture and then he became the um you know be like the kfc stuff um and i think it's because in france of course it's not caught he's not called captain bird's eye if that's uh, the right term uh, because that wouldn't translate so well and people can pronounce bird's eye so well in in, in french the name is captain igloo <laughs> is that right? I Correct. love that. So, so he's not. So, so the company's not called Bird's Eye. It's called Igloo, is it? Yeah, you buy uh, probably the Bird's Eye logo is somewhere and the packaging, but the name and the adverts. You know, you remember that that kind of character of the yeah, the yeah. Um, you know, it's Captain, Captain, Captain Bird's Eye, Captain Bird's Eye. <laughs> yeah, well, we had Captain Igloo, <laughs> Captain Igloo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! That's fantastic. But again, it's just remarkable how these ideas came about. I mean, these days we all have fridge freezers. We all, fr- you know, we, we freeze our leftovers so that we can have them later. Um, it's just what we do. But here it is an idea just by watching people thawing fish that had accidentally frozen in the sea. I think it's fabulous. Absolutely. Now I want to talk to you about King Kong in 1933. Oh. Um, oh, I mean, two things. I would have loved to have been around and be one of the people sat in a 6,200-seater cinema. We, I see pictures online of the Radio City Music Hall and the RKO Roxy, and it must have been such an experience um, to be there. But you watch King Kong, it must have been the avatar of its time. But the reason why King Kong is, um, feels important to me, A, I think I first saw it at, um, on, on TV, on French TV, and it scared me a lot. Like as a young child, the, the story just scared me and the animation. And I think we also saw the f- full version because, um, you know, little trivia, when it went out to the cinema, they cut many scenes that were deemed to be too violent, too scary. But of course, for TV, they were reintroduced. So you saw people being eaten 
by the diners were also <laughs> bitten and squashed by King Kong. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, being equally scared by the original King Kong. Um, and if you think about it, it's nearly 100 years old, 90, 90 years old, and the special effects were remarkable for the time a lot of it was stop-motion animation, wasn't mm -hmm. it? It may have been one of the first films that Ray Harryhausen did, and he was very famous for stop-motion animation. But the intricate detail that they went into to create that ape and make it move frame by frame, and the dinosaurs and all of those monsters. And, and I remember when uh, Peter Jackson remade King Kong a few years back, um, he introduced a scene which was actually deleted from the original in 1993 and that's where they fall right down into the bottom of a valley oh, yeah yeah and, yeah. And, uh, and you know where i'm going with this they get attacked by a load of insects and, and there's a really quite scary scene where one of the insects basically covers the head of this guy and he's and, he, and he's struggling and it's really really quite brutal but you can if you search you can actually find some of the original footage from that scene from the 1933 version somebody's actually gone to the trouble of trying to reconstruct it and it's actually pretty similar to what peter jackson did nearly 80 years later uh, and it's just again it's just remarkable to see how filmmaking techniques and special effects have changed over that time so then years later for me i saw it again at my comprehensive school's movie club oh yes i was already hooked in, in movies <laughs> so these were the days of proper movie clubs where you had to order the the prints and those prints would be played through a projector we used a canteen we projected on on the you know kind of on the wall in, in the canteen with um, the kind of the clacking and the roar of the uh, of the projector behind you and the sound was coming out of the of um, speakers that you put on on the floor so it was very very kind of uh, diyish but of course to promote the uh, the movie club we had no access to computers then so we had to draw the posters to put them on the uh, notice board in in the corridors of the comprehensive school and I was fired from that job because essentially <laughs> I can't draw. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely story. <laughs> and they still scare me the second time, even as a teenager watching <laughs> watching King Kong. All right, let's get back into the present, Roger, with the creator's shoutouts. All right, Roger. So who is under the spotlight this week for you? This week, I'm going to give a shout out for a gentleman called Martin Bamford. Now, there's another financial services link to this shout out. I've known Martin for many, many years. And back in the day, he was a financial advisor. In fact, worked and led for a time a company called Informed Choice uh, down south, just outside London. And he was one of the first people in the financial services industry, a bit like me, I guess, to embrace content marketing. He launched a podcast called the Informed Choice podcast many, many years ago. And He's played around with video, he's, he's written a book, and all sorts of other interesting content things. And the reason I'm giving him a shout-out is because he's an example of somebody who's gone from being a financial advisor to now effectively become a full-time content creator by launching his own content agency, which is called Bear Content. So it's very unusual, actually, to find somebody who makes such a complete career move based upon a passion. But I guess 
sort of happened to me. I was in big corporate and big corporate was tied up with bureaucracy and didn't want to explore video and didn't want to explore content. So I ended up leaving to, to become a, a consultant to help people with it. And, and Martin has become has been this financial advisor, but has embraced content and and seen how powerful and and and, uh, and exciting it can be, and has effectively taken the decision to take his career down that path. Now I th- he still does work for the Informed Choice. He still does a podcast for them. He still works for them as a as a director of education. But it, I just love the fact that something like content marketing as as become such a passion that he's gone on to create his own agency so well done martin and uh we still need to have that beer but hopefully now that the um now that the pandemic is uh, probably fading away it probably won't be too long in the future that we get to achieve that Super, thanks very much for this inclusion. So for me, this is a return of someone that we gave a shout out to, perhaps in the early stages of our podcast production, Ian Anderson Gray, live video <laughs> consultant and trainer, the host of the Confident Live Marketing Podcast. And now, which is the reason why I wanted to invite Ian Anderson Gray back on the shout out, is now the creator of the live video tool comparison. Now, Ian is kind of um, my go-to guy. Now, if I have a question, so I wonder what to do about my live streaming, ask myself the question, what would Ian do? And for the last few years, I'm going to say, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, Roger, it's been tireless in his approach to information, to education. He's got a blog series going, he's got a podcast series, he's investigating many, many facets of live streaming, but also building your confidence, approaching the tech in a very simple way, and putting all the effort in bringing value to your community. So this live video tool comparison is like this addition to already a wealth of information. So it's like an online questionnaire that takes you through your own reflection and desires about live streaming. And importantly, Roger, it starts with a question, why do you want to live stream? And what would be your primary reason for streaming? So you have to choose. And then from there, you have to say with the questions about, you know, how easy do you want the tools to be? You know, what is your preference? What is the max resolution you'd like to be streaming in? So it's using those early questions to already kind of filter out something between 20 and 30 different options, which is quite, quite something. Then it's going to go into the details of your live video features, you know, the, the quality, the privacy. Do you want guests? Do you want to do it on your own? Do you want to share your screen? Do you want to be scheduling? What about the layout of the scenes? So it's almost giving you, in the process, highlights about what is possible with live streaming, which I think is very, very important. And at the end, it will give you his recommendation. And then from there, you can then go into his vast, vast resources of blog articles and video reviews inform yourself more with the shortlist and i have to tell you i think it was an inspiration and for me kind of making me challenge myself thinking you know what could i do with my own customers to help them just shortlist the essentials as opposed to just being overwhelmed by, by the number of um you know options they have available to them so here we go ian anderson gray for the live video tool comparison Oh, great shout out i mean I, I, funnily enough pascal ian was one of the first people in the content marketing industry that I actually met. I met him before I met you. I met him before I met the likes of Chris Ducker and Chris Marr and people like that. We had a, a, a video conversation over Zoom many, many years ago and obviously kept in touch since. And, and it's always good to see Ian out there uh, doing what he does so well. Uh, and, and I always have a slight giggle to myself as well because Ian Anderson without the grey at the end of it, is the lead singer of one of my favourite groups, Jethro Tull, who 
coincidentally have just relaunched their first album in nearly 20 years. So every time I see Ian Anderson Gray, I always have that momentary Jethro Tull moment before I realise it's actually Ian Anderson Gray as opposed to Ian Anderson. And of course, Ian Anderson Gray is a classically trained singer and uh, shares some of his um, snippets online as well. But listen, let's move on from live streaming, small screen, to the very large screen with film marketing. All right, Roger, so I'm really excited because we're going to be talking about one of the most exciting action movies of the 2010s, but oddly, perhaps the least known action movies of the 2010s. Let's watch the trailer again. feel as if time is passing at one percent its normal speed if we play this right we can take the whole city Peachtree's is the manufacturing base for all the slow-mo in Mega City One. You know how often we get a judge up in Peachtree's? Well, you got one now. She has control of everything. Levels one to 200. This is Mama. Somewhere in this block are two judges. That's not good. I want him dead. We're gonna have to go through him. Rookie, you ready? Yeah. You look ready. Fire! Judgment time. Let's finish this. Wow. I remember I went to the movies <laughs> with uh, my friend Paul to see this, and we absolutely loved it. Yeah. I mean, Judge, Judge Dredd. It was actually called Dredd, isn't it? I, um, I've been a fan of the comic Judge Dredd in 2000, AD, in, in 2000 AD since it was launched in 1977. You know, I remember my dad buying me the first um edition of 2000 AD in 1977 it cost about 6p and it came with a little uh, um almost frisbee thing called a space spinner which was absolutely incredible to play with and judge dread was it launched in the second edition the week after that and pretty much has appeared in every issue since 1977 to today and 
There was a film of Judge Dredd made back in 1995 starring Sylvester Stallone, and it was not a very good film. It didn't really capture the essence of the comic strip at all, whereas this film, Dredd, which was made in 2012, absolutely nailed the character in my eyes, nailed the atmosphere of the futuristic city, nailed the way that the criminals interact with the judges and the special effects and the violence. And yes, it's absolutely amazing film. But unfortunately, it really didn't do very well at the box office at all. And a lot of people point to the marketing of the film as being really poor. And I have to say, one of the things that people say is that the trailer wasn't very good. And whilst I get excited watching that trailer just now, Pascal. Actually, it doesn't really sell the movie about being about this futuristic cop. The first at least minute and a half of that trailer is all about the the protagonist, the the um, the, the criminal. We don't really see dread until towards the end of the trailer, and somebody just casually watching that trailer might not have been sucked in enough to actually go and see the film themselves. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the marketing because it feels very odd for me to be talking about a f- movie that I really, really like. And this is like mm-hmm. the 10th year anniversary. So it feels like there should be an event at some stage. Um, this is something that I would go back to at least once a year because once again, when I was at, at the cinema, and I, I would agree with you, even then I realized this has been very modestly promoted unless mm-hmm. you're a hardcore fan of the genre. And uh, can I just say as well, you know, isn't that exciting that the UK had this sci-fi magazine in a um, kind of format and storytelling format that usually dominated by the US? But so yeah. I was sat there thinking, this is incredibly put together and they respected, you know, the law of the judges did uh, so many things right. And it didn't receive the, the, the just, you know, kind of return on effort and investment by a, a wider audience. And therefore, it's odd for me to say, I love this film, but back gum this marketing campaign is a little embarrassing yeah and and maybe one of the things is i mean 2000 ad has been a phenomenally successful magazine in the united kingdom for close to 50 years now but unlike marvel comics and unlike dc comics i don't think it's got that worldwide audience and yes in the uk we all know who judge dread is and we all know 2000 ad but I think that that's probably one of the reasons, unlike the Marvel movies with their 10 times the size of budgets and the DC movies with their 10 times the size of the budgets, the marketing budget for Dread was nowhere near as big as that. And maybe it's just too much of a cult comic. And they didn't, they they pandered maybe to the uh, to the fans of Dread to the fans of Judge Dread. So people like you and I are thinking, "Wow, this is so um, this is so uh, faithful to the comic strip. It's so good." But maybe they should have taken it and tried to get in those people who don't know who Judge Dread is, don't and have never heard of the 2000 AD magazine. I would agree. It's not impossible to introduce a, a, a non character to to mainstream. It's done countless number of time but mm. that's what i mean to you it feels almost as though you and i should have been involved yet again can we go back <laughs> jump in the tardis or the delorean and go back in time and speak to the producer saying if you've done a short analysis you would know that you were up against quite a lot you know that summer 20, 20, 2012 i know you've done the research but there were some serious blockbusters going yes. on 
the swap analysis would tell you that this is a UK stroke European, you know, kind of uh, flavored uh, universe and and character. So your marketing campaign has to be adjusted accordingly. And it feels to me as though they they did the one trailer, which I would agree didn't do enough to even sell the concept of the judges of crime and punishment with everything that comes with it. And the poster, which got really criticized by the fans, is a cross between essentially Dark Knight and The Raid, which was also a movie mm-hmm. that came out a few years later, because mm-hmm. there was a whole relationship with you know, trying to get into the tower and get to the top to catch the baddie. So I think also there was some kind of just enough uh, you know, effort in, in marketing, and, and, and I think that they paid a heavy price for that. Yeah, and I mean, interestingly, going back to the Sylvester Stallone film from 1995, that was criticised because apart from the very early scenes in the film, Stallone took off his helmet, and for the rest of the film, he was Sylvester Stallone playing Judge Dredd. Now, in the comic, Judge Dredd has never taken his helmet off. It's it's just what what is underneath Judge Dredd's helmet? What does he look like? It's always been that mysterious thing. And I remember in the the, the publicity of Dredd, you know, the star of the film, Carl uh, Urban, was saying, I'm not taking my helmet off in this film. You never get to see my face. That's more faithful to Judge Dredd. But ironically, that could be one of the reasons why it failed to suck in the people who weren't aware of the character. Because, I mean, we all know who Carl Urban is. He played Dr. McCoy in the Star Trek reboots, and he's a great actor, and his comic timing was great, and and his facial expressions, obviously, from the fact that he had this helmet on, can carry the entire character. But they didn't really refer to that in the marketing. So, you know, nobody, well, who's Carl Urban? Never heard of him. They didn't even say he played Scotty in, in, in uh, sorry, he played McCoy in, in Star Trek. They didn't even play upon that. So we have a, a film with an unknown actor almost who never takes his helmet off. So that's a bit boring to start with. And his co-star who played um, um, Judge Anderson, again, relative unknown. And yes, Lena Headey was in it and she plays Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. But she this was at the time when I think Game of Thrones would have been in maybe season one or maybe maybe season two or three, I guess. But she hadn't really gone on to that global fame of being Cersei Lannister. So they probably didn't even know who she was. So they didn't play to any of these things in the in the poster or in the in the in the in the trailer that we've just watched. So again, people are thinking, I don't know any of these people. Why should I go to the cinema to see it? Do you know, the more I'm listening to you, the more I realize what a bad marketing campaign. And I feel terrible saying that. You know, mm. frankly, who are we? Because once again, we were not in the meetings. We didn't know what the limitations were. But there are some essentials that we've, we've covered now in the part um, of, well, actually, if I'm not mistaken, this is our 65th movie film marketing campaign <laughs> we are reviewing, Roger. And yeah. the essentials of. You know, SWOT analysis, again, if I may use that gimmick, it's not a gimmick, listen to me, but, you know, the the, the principle of what are our strengths, where the strengths are, and we need to lead on the assets. So Carl Urban, you know, people know him from maybe Aelmir, from Lord of the Rings, from the Chronicles of Riddick, for the Born Supremacy, was such a good buddy. Mm-hmm. Doom, out of the blue, Pathfinder, Star Trek, you mentioned mm-hmm. Red. Mm-hmm. And then you had, obviously, Lena Headey, you know, from The Cave, absolutely great horror film. Brothers Grimm, mm-hmm. wonderful. 300 the Sarah Connor Chronicles. All you had to do was say that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes. just yeah. say it on the trailer, just say it in, in the poster. 
you should have done like all the other films, some character spotlights uh, on social media because by then, you know, it's big in, have some behind the scenes stuff on YouTube. There were so many things. And back to this idea of budget, I tell you what, let the fans do it then. Literally send, do an official website, give all the assets to the fans because frankly, everybody you know, around the world who's been you know, reading the 2080 um, would have done reviews. They've been all over the podcast and so on. So leaning on the network as well, as we've seen people do actually like Peter Jackson, our very first film marketing. Oh my God, the more I listen to you, the more I realize this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, let, let, let's let's be fair to them. Some yeah. of some of the stuff they did do was good. I mean, they okay. did put together an advertising site. Um, it, it actually only came out a month before the film, which is right. probably a pro- probably a problem in itself. But it was called Dread Report. Um, it was satirizing Drudge Report. Um, but it had it, it. It was it was in in context. So the video was condemning the use of slow mo, the drug that's used in the film, and they also published a tie in comic, um, obviously drawn artwork with the backstory of Marma. You know the the character played by Lena Headey and, and why she became this uh, this big drug dealer in 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 Mega City One, and and you know, that is absolutely great content but it was again targeted at the hardcore fans now your average man on the street who probably would have enjoyed judge dread for the exciting film it was is probably not going to go and buy a comic that explains the backstory of one of the characters in the film that he's vaguely heard about so again whilst i applaud this piece of artwork this this backstory comic that they put together it didn't pander to the right right audiences or it or they should have done something else to bring in the people who didn't really know the backstories for me what's interesting is is back to this idea of the audience you know you could have had mini campaigns targeting the, the big fans or could i ask yeah. uh, i don't want to um kind of break your heart but have you kept that copy of of 2018 oh. do you know what pascal <laughs> i it's one of the biggest regrets i I had every single issue from number one all the way through to about 1,200. And when I left university and I needed a bit of money, I sold them all. I got quite a lot of money for them, even at, at the time. Uh, but no, I, I let them go. And I remember actually when I took them to a comic shop to to um to sell them i mean the guy was very was very nice and he gave me a good price but of course the original um yeah red frisbee thing he said that if i'd kept that attached to the comic with the original piece of sellotape it would have been worth about 10 times more but of course <laughs> i was a seven-year-old oh, child I yeah yeah of course <laughs> the frisbee off and went off to play with the damn thing and also of course it was delivered by the news agent so on the top corner of each of the editions, the, the news the um, news agent had written 10 Fairhaven Road, which is where I lived at the time. And the guy in the comic shop said, you've devalued the, <laughs> the your comics just by having that written on it as well. So the thing is, if, if you ever do see a new comic that's launched, buy another copy, put it in an airtight container and keep it for 50 <laughs> years. And it, and it will probably be worth an absolute fortune. But when you're a seven-year-old kid, you don't really think of things like that. 
No, it would be impossible. So, so very quickly for me, you know, when you think about all the other film marketing campaigns we've reviewed, social media played a part in that. And there was so much you could have done. Uh, for example, take a picture of yourself with your copy, 2000 AD, from you know way, yeah. way back when. Um, you could have had some interesting votes. You know, be the judge. And you could have some fictional crimes and, you know, a thumbs up or thumb down. There could be so much done that could have been very low cost, but, you know, very high impact. So we are being critical of the marketing campaign, but that's say the industry actually praised it because they won an award, according to your research. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, it got great reviews. You know, mm. it's got a high score on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it's about 80, 89 or something. It's really high. And it even won awards like the Golden Trailer Award for Best Thriller TV Spot. Um, and, and it also won the Best Action TV Spot, Most Original TV Spot, Best Graphics in a TV Spot, Best Music TV Spot, Best Action Poster, and Most Original Poster, although we've already said the poster in our minds wasn't. So it did do good things. And the blu-ray and the dvd have sold extremely well uh, i think the the latest count is something like close 750,000 copies of the dvd and, and the blu-ray so it has sort of become more of a cult movie since it was launched but unfortunately it was such a disaster at the box office that the the people who backed it just um, totally moved on there was i think originally it was they were going to make three films but it was such a disaster that the that the people who backed it just said no that that's the end of it and it the success of the dvd and the blu-ray hasn't been enough to move into sequel mode there's been a bit of talk about maybe doing a netflix series and carl urban says that he would be happy to do that but i suspect it isn't going to happen because unfortunately that original film just didn't it just didn't work if anything it proves the importance of a, a good marketing campaign doesn't does mm. it not because mm. i mean when i was watching the trailer all that memory of being at the cinema and watching it again on dvd and so on i mean and then you look at the comments that people have left on the youtube um, channel this movie is a masterpiece hands down mm. one of the most underrated action movies of all time this commission mark with thousands of likes against that to this day i do not understand how this movie didn't get the acclaim it deserved probably yep. the most underrated piece of recent cinema and so it goes on um so yeah it's it's just um weird you know this movie is on my shelf and i'm very proud to own a copy and i go back to it once a year and if only others have had the had the pleasure of watching it as well and I think, you know, we've, we've reviewed, as you've said, 65 films, marketing campaigns now. <laughs> and, and, we, uh, and, and we've reviewed films which were marketed on a low budget and they were very successfully. This one was just absolutely ripe for social media. You know, even just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the social media campaign for Scream 5 and how successful that was. This would have been, as you say, take a picture of yourself with your 2000 idea issue number one or the first issue with Judge Dredd in it. Um, it could have worked. They could have got that fan base to make it, make it work to a wider audience. But I guess we learn the lessons of history and mm. hopefully uh, we can move on from those lessons well thank you so much once again uh, it was your suggestion to go for dread so roger sent me a message on on messenger what about dread and i replied within milliseconds perfect <laughs> three exclamation marks uh, you know superb choice
Well, everyone, this was episode 68. An absolute pleasure to spend some time with you, Roger. Thank you very much for being such a wonderful co-host and for your research on fiat marketing. To viewers and listeners, please leave your comments in the usual places, share, and let us know how we can add value by producing this podcast for you. Until the next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Roger Edwards.